This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, November 16th. I'm Samantha Sherris. Joining the podcast today is Brigadier General Robert Spalding, who is the author of Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept, and is also in the new movie Innovation Race, which is in theaters throughout the United States today, November 16th. According to the movie's synopsis, for the past century, America has been the world leader in ideas, invention, and innovation, developing new technologies to solve complex issues as well as tools to make our lives more comfortable and efficient is the realization of the American dream for many. But our grip on world leader status is loosening as China has emerged as a powerful political and industrial force. Brigadier General Spaulding joins the podcast to discuss this innovation race between the United States and China, what's at stake for U.S. national security, and the Made in China 2025 plan. We'll get to my conversation with Brigadier General Spaulding right after this. Want the inside scoop on what's happening here at the Heritage Foundation? Check out Heard at Heritage, an all-new show replacing the Heritage Events podcast. It'll feature cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement and, of course, the Heritage Foundation's premier events and programming, brought straight to you. Check it out at heritage.org podcasts. Brigadier General Robert Spaulding is joining the podcast today. He is the author of War Without Rules, China's Playbook for Global Domination and Stealth War, How China Took Over While America's Elite Slept. He's also in the new movie, Innovation Race. Thank you so much for joining today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Of course. Now, I want to talk about this new movie that's coming out, Innovation Race, which will be in theaters on November 16th. Can you tell us a little bit about the movie? I started a company after I left the military, and one of the things that I learned very quickly is that a lot of the a lot of the ideas I had with regard to our patent system were no longer valid. In fact, you know, I was told by you know our, our head of hardware that you know in participating in patent um, litigation, you know, throughout his career, you know, recently patents, you know, almost. 85% had been overturned. Um, and so we had focused on trade secrets to protect our intellectual property for our, for our company. And, um, and that's because of the, of the America Invents Act, which was passed in 2011, which negated a lot of the constitutional patent protections um, that were created by the, the founders um, of our country. And so the the movie itself really talks about the importance of the patent system to uh, innovation in the United States, how that's, you know, kept our country secure, um, you know, throughout the almost 240 plus years of existence and how that, um, that security was, you know, negated by the American Men's Act and how, you know, in this competition that we face today, um, you know, with uh, China, in particular, that it's it's creating a challenge for America in terms of innovation and, and keeping its uh, rightful place uh, at the top of science, technology, and, and research and development. Now, without giving too many spoilers away, I heard the movie uh, talk about national security. Can you speak to what's at stake regarding um, our national security and our innovation race with China? Sure. We got out of the habit of really understanding what it means to 
compete with an adversary that's a peer, uh, or in the case of China, you know, in, t- in terms of military in their region, I would say, you know, um, they are, they're at the top. And so when we, when we, when the Cold War ended and the Berlin Wall came down, you know, at the time we were spending, you know, 2% of GDP on uh, uh, research and development, science and technology. We had, you know, an enormous, um, you know, science and technology capability in terms of um, indigenous talent in the United States. Our infrastructure and our manufacturing were top notch. And as the Cold War ended, we we really, um, you know, embraced China and all of those things really reversed. And so today, when you think of how much we're investing in science and technology from um, from the government standpoint, it's less than 0.7%. Usually, most of that technology ends up uh, in the hands of China. Uh, our infrastructure is a grade D. Our manufacturing supply chain has completely, almost completely moved to China. And then most of our talent now is coming from overseas. And in particular, um, a lot of it is coming from China. So, you know, all of these things that we had that led to our victory in the Cold War, which was not a military, um, you know, competition, but more of an economic and science and technological competition, all of those advantages have essentially been subsumed by China. And so as we enter the second Cold War uh, with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and a coming invasion by China of Taiwan, we find ourselves in a completely different position than we were at the end of World War II, which is uh, we had the um, all of the supply chain. We had all the manufacturing capability. Today, we don't, and that leaves us at tremendous, tremendous dif- disadvantage. One example uh, alone is pharmaceuticals, where China controls the manufacture of pharmaceuticals. And, um, and if we do try to get in a situation where we're sanctioning China over an invasion of Taiwan, their ability to cut off supply to pharmaceuticals will be a crippling blow to the United States. And so I think we haven't really thought well in terms of what are the implications of this relationship with China that we've um, that we've looked after uh, over the last 30 years. Yeah, that is really interesting, um, you know, to put in perspective with China controlling pharmaceuticals. Um, you know, how do we reverse that? Is it too late at this point? I mean, how do we bring that um, to the United States so we aren't in a situation where, you know, if we do have to sanction China in the event that they do invade Taiwan, that we're able to, um, you know, give the American people what they need? Well, the funny thing is most of the people that say that we can't do this are the people that are benefiting from the fact that we did do this. Um, and, and for the most part, U.S. corporations and financial institutions operate on, on greed. Uh, that's always been the case. Uh, it was a, even the case during World War II when you had companies that were advocating not to go to war with Germany because they had a financial stake in, um, you know, with the Nazi regime. So this is not something new to um, U.S.'s open system and, 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 and capitalist free market system, but it's something that um, we have gotten out of the habit of, of dealing with from a government perspective. And so um, we can move the supply chain. We can rebuild our infrastructure. We can um, you know, have American children uh, go um, and be, uh, have STEM scholarships just like we did during the Cold War. It just requires resolve. 
it will take some time. Uh, but that, that uh, nevertheless, you know, this competition is not a military competition. And so one of the things that we can consider, like we did during the, the, cold, the first Cold War, is to reduce our direct expenditure on military weapons and transfer some of that expenditure to the things that I'm talking about, infrastructure, manufacturing, science and technology, STEM education. And in doing so, prepare ourselves much better for the competition to come because, quite frankly, um, the, the challenge of nuclear weapons has not gone away. Although we seem to have lost our fear and respect for the weapons um, and our knowledge of what they do in terms of the calculations that nation states have to uh, think about when it comes to um, an adversary that's nuclear armed. So I think focusing our, you know, financial expenditures in the United States on these things will get us far along the path in making it happen. Corporate sector, the corporate sector, the financial institutions of this country are not going to do it voluntarily. We had to impose legal um, restrictions on doing business with the Soviet Union to prevent companies from doing the same thing that they're doing today with China. So this is not something new. It's just something that we are, um, you know, three decades out of practice of. Now, I, while I was watching the movie, learned so much um, and, and really was just fascinated by how much knowledge was, you know, being relayed throughout the movie. Uh, you know, what, from your perspective, was the most surprising thing or, or fact or even takeaway that you learned, you know, while making this movie? Well, I, um, in particular, like the stories of the inventors, and I think um, understanding the personal calculations that um, that they uh, went through in terms of trying to protect their uh, intellectual property, and then realizing that you know they're not able to, to me, was the was the most um, you know I think the most important part of the film. I mean. You know, one of the things about America's innovation, um, you know, relies on individual initiative. And if they're, um, if you're not certain about the ability to protect your intellectual property, then you're going to be less likely to go out there and take all the financial risks and personal risks that are associated with being an entrepreneur and, or inventor. And so, you know, hearing those stories, understanding the implications across our economy, you know, as you multiply those by, you know, 330 million, really just gives you an, a sense of the gravity of this, uh, of the challenge that, that this American Events Act created for our country. Now, in the movie, um, the Made in China 2025 plan was also talked about. Can you explain a little bit more about what is this plan and uh you know it's 2022 we're coming up on 2025 in just three years uh how close is is china to achieving its goals as part of this plan well as you can see with the chips act that uh, was recently unveiled and the the further um you know restrictions that the commerce department is beginning to um put towards uh the ability for china to get access to chip manufacturing technology the um, we we're starting to um, to really recognize the power of uh, Made in China 2025, and we're starting to react. But in reality, when you look at things like quantum and artificial intelligence, the Chinese have already surpassed us in many of these areas, and um, and so Made in China 2025 is a is a um, 
uh, a, a top-down plan by the Chinese Communist Party to dominate the major technologies, what they believe to be the major technology of the 21st century. In a sense, uh, the United States was doing something very similar. Now, they weren't um, – you know, like China saying, these are the technologies where we are going to invest in. They were just investing in labs and in, um, in creating space for um, innovation to happen by using um, federal dollars. That um, So in many ways, what Made in China 2025 is doing for China, you know, our spending on research and development during the Cold War did for the United States in terms of its competition with the Soviet Union. So they're very different programs in terms of how they go about what they're doing, but very similar in terms of what their uh, intended goal is. Uh, in, in terms of the United States, we wanted to um, have technological superiority over the Soviet Union. The Chinese are seeking the same thing, and they're just going about it a different way, but they are putting the requisite investment into um, their universities, their corporations, as a, as opposed to what the United States is doing. Like even the Chips Act, for example, you know, China has spent hundreds of billions of dollars trying to um, you know get chip manufacturing technology, and the Chips Act only I think spends forty billion dollars. So. You know, understanding that this is a competition of how much uh, we invest um, in our science and technology, uh, I think is important. But Made in China 2025 is not something that we should we should look likely at because um, it seeks to do the same thing that we did to the Soviet Union, which is dominate the technology space. And as you know, as well as our audience knows, we just had the midterm elections. For the next Congress, what are you hoping to see policy-wise regarding China? Where do you think Congress can be more aggressive, uh, in, in your opinion? Well, so, I mean, many of the things that we did uh, during the Cold War, I think, need to be brought back. They had a program called um, Education for National Security, and, and that was federal dollars that were given to American kids to get a STEM degree. You know, that's where we got a lot of our scientists that work on the rocket program, um, uh, for example, um, investing in science and technology, so boosting that, the level of that investment from the 0.7% that I mentioned to 2% of GDP, I think would be um, good. Using things like the Defense Production Act and uh, Title III um, to bring back manufacturing, to force manufacturing to come back to the United States um, in, in, in certain areas, and then using the purchasing power of the federal government to further um, incentivize that. These are all things that I think the, um, uh, that the, uh, the Congress could do, and to include preventing investment of our retirement funds into China. So ensuring that, you know, whether it be financial, corporate, trade, academic, our political system, that each of these areas that we eliminate any ability for China to use those areas to undermine our society, I think is important. Now, these have been policies that were pursued in the Trump administration. Uh, the Biden administration has also attempted. But what ends up happening is the corporate sector and the financial sector lobby both the president or the administration and Congress to water down these policies so that they're actually not as effective as they could be. And so I think the, the, the new Congress, what they could do is begin to really sharpen 
and accelerate that decoupling and in doing so force the reshoring of critical manufacturing uh, like microelectronics and especially pharmaceuticals. Now, just before we go, uh, your final thoughts, what do you think is being missed in the coverage of China uh, and its threat to U.S. interests? Well, I think the, the, the big thing that stood out for me in the 20th Party Congress is that Wang Huning, who is the ideological, you know, um, you know intellectual underpinnings of Xi Jinping thought, uh, and who advised uh, Jiang Zemin and who advised Hu Jintao uh, is on the standing committee. So people like Liu He, who were actually, um, you know, educated uh, along the lines of a free market economy and um, really worked hard with Ambassador Lighthizer to get to a trade agreement that was then tore, uh, torn up by Xi Jinping. Um, I think what we see in this new standing committee are absolute ideologues. And so understanding that there is no way to um, coexist with the Chinese Communist Party because of their ideology. They fear constitutional democracy. They fear um, their their population coming to understand, appreciate, and then desire the liberties that are granted by our Constitution. And so they do everything in their power to suppress that, not just at home, but abroad. So understanding the, the ideological nature of this competition and how, whether or not we understand that they're a threat, Chi the Chinese Communist Party view our republic as a direct threat to their continued rule over their, um, over their um, population. We have to acknowledge that. We have to respect that, and we have to um, we have to respond to that in much the same way that FDR and Winston Churchill did um, when they signed the Atlantic Charter. Um, you know, prior to the start of World War II, they understood um, at that time what Nazi Germany and, and Imperial Japan wanted. Uh, in particular, Winston Churchill understood what the Soviet Union wanted. He actually came to the United States uh, for a tour gave a very important speech in St. Louis about um, the Iron uh, Curtain falling over Europe and really gave the uh, ideological underpinnings behind the reasoning behind you know, our response during the first Cold War. We need that. We need that understanding of that, that this is an ideological competition. It is not one where um, the, both can survive and coexist in a globalized world where they're completely interconnected, um, one has to give way to the other. Either you have nations that respond to their um, to their um, to their citizens, or you have citizens that re respond to uh, authoritarian regimes. And that is this type of world that China seeks to engender, much the way the United States and her allies sought to engender the the ideas of uh, civil liberties and rule of law and human rights and free markets uh, at the end of the Second World War. Well, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about innovation race, Brigadier General Robert Spaulding. I would love to have you back on in the, on the podcast in the future. Um, it was really great to get your insight and I uh, hope you'll join me again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to my interview with Brigadier General Robert Spaulding. I hope you all get a chance to take a look at this movie. It's really interesting and really informative about the race between China and the United States. If you liked this interview and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to The Daily Signal wherever you get your podcasts. And help us reach even more listeners by leaving a five-star rating and review. We read and appreciate all of your feedback. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day, and we'll be back with you all this afternoon for top news. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen, Samantha Asheris, and Jillian Richards. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.